Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard Podcast. Our mission is simple. Find God, find others, find yourself. That's it. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information on Reveal, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. We're on week three of our Advent series called uh, I Call Him, and we're asking the question, what do you or can you call Jesus? What name can you place upon him through your experience, through your understanding, through your faith? What is it that you call him? Several hundred years before the birth of Jesus was uh, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, who 700 years before the birth of Christ spoke of the advent or the coming of the Christ child. Advent is uh, in Latin is the adventus, meaning the coming or the appearing. And so Isaiah spoke of the advent or the appearing of a son that would be given to us. And then he went on to describe the names that he would be called, the names that would be uh, placed upon him. They were names that showed how he related to his people. They were descriptors. They defined his character and the nature of Jesus. And so we're asking, we know what Isaiah called him, but what do you call him? When Isaiah spoke these words, it was a dark, difficult time uh, among the tribes of Israel. There was uh, hopelessness that was over them, despair and wandering. They had sunk into a famine, but not a famine of food. It was a famine of, of hope, really, where nothing on the horizon seemed good, at least as far as they could see. Their, their, their leaders had failed them. The people have turned to idolatry. And, and because of that, uh, there was just a spiritual haze or fog that had settled over the people. All of their own solutions, their own wisdom to deal with the mounting problem of the enemies, their enemies coming against them had failed. And all that was left, really, was to wait for death. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a famine of hope where it seemed like everything you tried, everything you thought would work only seemed to pull the energy, what little energy you have had left seemed to pull that energy from you. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where discouragement set up camp, not in your front yard, but walked right into your front living room. Discouragement comes and says, I'm going to be here a while. You may as well get used to my face. I don't know if you've ever been in a position where whatever you saw on the horizon seemed seemed dark and bleak and there just seemed to be no hope. It was into a situation like this, a sinister, menacing, lifeless environment that Isaiah spoke the words of a coming hope. He promises that a ray of light would break into the darkness and hope would overcome despair and misery. And here's how Isaiah said it. Chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It's the first of the four names that Isaiah speaks over him. And we've asked, can you call him your Wonderful Counselor? The term there in Hebrew is actually Pele Yates. And when you hear wonderful, don't think of, of isn't this great and isn't this, he's not the marvelous counselor. The word wonderful actually means awe-inspiring or miraculous or one who counsels with wonders. So the idea is, is more of, of awe and wonder. And so Isaiah was saying that the one who is coming will be a miraculous counselor unto you. 
Now, Isaiah is speaking, but God is the one sending the message. A prophet was simply a mouthpiece for God. And so Isaiah is speaking a message that God is giving to his people. And in effect, what God was saying was, I know your human wisdom has placed you in the current mess. And it did. They had all these solutions worked out and they all backfired. God says, I know your human solutions have left you in this mess that you're now living in, but a son is coming whose counsel unto you will be far beyond anything you've ever known. And his wisdom will surpass human understanding. His counsel to you will be miraculous. His guidance will be unmatched. His understanding unrivaled. And his leadership will be unequaled. And so it is into this situation that God says, Unto you a son will be born, and he will be a miraculous counselor to you. Can you call him your Pele Yates, your miraculous counselor? You can if you heed his counsel. Now, when I think of a counselor, I think of, of someone in a leather chair, maybe with a sweater and a spiral ne- ring notebook, and he's just kind of taking notes as I'm talking, and he makes sounds like, mm-hmm, interesting, tell me more about your mother, right? You ever been to a counselor? I've been to some counselors, so I might know that. Uh, 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 and and this, this idea of a counselor, and then they will give you advice on the blind spots in your life or, or give you uh, direction on how to avoid pitfalls in life, but... A counselor is good when I need advice, but a counselor is not necessarily the person I want to take into battle when life gets hard. But Isaiah says, well, we have you covered there as well, because not only is the son coming to you a wonderful counselor, but he is mighty God. Look at the rest of 9.6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be wonderful counselor, mighty God. The Hebrew phrase there is Gabor Ale. It means strong and mighty. By implication, it means a warrior or a champion, a hero, undefeated in battle. And so Isaiah says that coming unto you is not only a counselor that will give you wisdom beyond all human understanding, but that when the enemy shows up at your door, he will be a mighty God that will fight for the people he loves and will contend with those who contend with you. And then he goes on with another descriptor where he says, not only will he be a wonderful counselor and a mighty God, but then he places upon Jesus a title that resonates within us, in us in a way that the others do not. He says, and his name shall be wonderful counselor, mighty God, go to that next one, everlasting father. And I want us to think about that word father for a moment. Because it settles over us in a way that both wonderful counselor and mighty God do not. Few words provoke a more varied, visceral response than father. They're, they're, the range of emotions of just that, that term, just that name father, can, can, can span from honor and love and pride to shame and disappointment and even hatred. And the depth of of our response to this idea of fatherhood, it communicates something about us. And what it communicates is this. Put that on the screen. That father hunger is universal. That there is something within all of us that hungers and longs for and even craves a father that we can connect to and relate to. That, that there, there is something within us that longs for a healthy, intimate, life-giving relationship with one that we can identify as father. I don't care 
how old you are or where you were born or what circumstances you are from. It's universal within us, and I don't know if it ever passes. I'm 47, and I still long for a day that my father looks me in the eyes and says, I'm proud of you. I don't know if it ever goes away. I don't know if we ever can just shed, it, uh, sh- shed that, that cloak over us. I think it sticks within us because there's something in all of us. It's universal that we crave a father. Kyle Pruitt, who is a pediatrician and a researcher, said this about our father hunger. He said, when this normal craving is satisfied, children are likely to grow up feeling confident, secure, strong, and good enough. Often, however, this yearning is not acknowledged and the need for a bond with the father grows, causing self-doubt, pain, anxiety, and depression. Father hunger is a deep, persistent desire for emotional connection with a father that is experienced by everyone. And in our culture today, we are father deficient. Spend time reading uh, or flipping through the TV channels uh, this week and you'll see that the fathers portrayed on television not really the cream of the crop, starting with guys like Homer Simpson, Peter Griffin, not typically the best fathers you're ever going to want to see, right? And whether it, it's, it's anyone else in there, whether it's Frank Barone or Frank Costanza or Red Foreman or Al Bundy or Phil Dunphy or Mike Heck or Maury Goldberg, the roles that are given to fathers often in our culture today are of these bumbling idiots who are present but not active in the lives of their children and in their families. But this idea of father deficiency, it's not just highlighted in today's culture. It can really be seen throughout history, including in biblical history. Oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, we see uh, a father deficiency of fathers, even uh, in the Bible, who were poor examples to their children, who refused to discipline, fell into immorality, abandoned their family responsibility. They played favorites. And it is into this culture that Isaiah is speaking into into a father-deficient culture, into a universal longing for a father figure who can be respected and honored and trusted, Jesus is introduced as everlasting father. Today, there is a push to remove gender references of God in the biblical text. And so strong is this push that uh, some have published gender-neutral Bibles where all references to God as male have been removed from our text. Now, you understand that God isn't man, right? It's, he's not like us. But some would take offense that God revealed himself as male. Now, hear me. Perhaps God revealed himself to us as male. Not out of a gender bias or, or modeling gender superiority, but rather he knew the universal longing we possess for a father. Perhaps the reason that he reveals himself to us as, as man is because he knew, because he placed something in us that you will crave, you will long for in a way that is unlike any other relationship. You will have a father hunger within you that is universal and I desire as your father to step in to that role. And so to us is given a counselor, yes. To us is given a mighty God, yes, but to us is given a father, an everlasting father will be given to us. Now, the word father has caused some confusion throughout uh, history. 
the word father, uh, uh, it is, Isaiah is not saying that Jesus is the father. All right? The son is not the father and the father is not the son. There's no confusion in what Isaiah was speaking of here. It's not a statement of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity says that there are three gods but one God. That there is one God that exists in three distinct persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three gods, but are one being, which is difficult for our minds to get around that. It is in contrast to what is known as modalism that's been around since the fourth century, which is, uh, those would say that there is only one God, not three gods that are one being, but there is one God that appears as three different beings at different times. Modalism would say that there is God the Father only that appears sometimes as Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit, but there's one God. Well, uh, the, the gospel or the doctrine of the Trinity, which we adhere to, most uh, Christians do, three gods, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, but one God. Kind of blows our mind, but that, that's the idea of the Trinity. And so it is not Isaiah getting confused on the distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not a statement about the Trinity. It's a statement about the character of the Son who will be given to us. Isaiah tells us that a Son will be given, but in His nature, in His response to us, He will be like a Father. All that a good Father is, Isaiah is saying, will be found in the Son that is given. That phrase, eternal father, might be best uh, uh, interpreted as father of eternity. That the son who is given is before and above and beyond time. That he possesses all of eternity. And because he possesses eternity, he can offer us eternity. And he will be a father throughout eternity. Meaning he will be faithful as a father should be. He will protect as a father should protect. He will love as a father should love. Discipline as a father should discipline. And provide as a father should provide. This is the son given to us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father. Not only to to be a father to us, but to point the way to the father. To reveal God the father to us. Which admittedly is not easy for us to receive because our picture of a father can easily be warped, the uh, canvas can be torn or out of focus and the paint smeared because of how we respond or our experience with our earthly father often determines how we respond to our heavenly father. Let's unpack that a little bit. Maybe your father was never satisfied and you grew up longing for the words, I'm proud of you and great job. And you tried to be perfect, you tried to be better, you gave your best effort, all longing for a father that would finally recognize you and speak the words over you that you have longed to hear. And now you relate to our heavenly father as you did to your earthly, earthly father, and you see that God is a God who is never satisfied with you. Regardless of how hard you try or what you do or how you perform, God is never quite thrilled enough with you to say, I'm proud of you, or to call you a beloved son or a beloved daughter. Maybe your father was prone to fits of anger and you had to walk on eggshells and you never knew how dad would respond based upon how he woke up that morning. And now you respond to our heavenly father in a way of you're expecting God to be angry with you, that he's waiting for you to mess up, and you don't know, can I approach God boldly today, or do I need to stand back because of something I've done to upset the Father? Maybe 
You had an earthly father who let you down. You said he would, but never did. Who said he could, but couldn't come through. Who said to trust, but you learned that you couldn't. And now you really have a difficult time trusting that God is good. You have a difficult time trusting that God the Father is for you because of your experience with your earthly father. Maybe, perhaps you grew up in a home where love was conditional and you felt love was given according to how you behaved or love was given based upon a mood and now you expect that God's love towards you is also in, in that, that it is conditional and you have to respond and perform a certain way in order for God to love you. Or maybe there was a father who was seldom there or you rarely saw him or he was home long enough to change or maybe he walked out on some point in your life at an early age and now you question God's faithfulness to you and whether God will not pull back when life is hard for you and you question his existence or, or you question his care or you question if God is really near to you. And it is for this reason that a son is given to us that not only will he be like a father to us, but he will reveal what God the Father is like. Philip was a disciple of Jesus. And at one point, Philip mustered the courage to make an enormous request of Jesus. We find the story in John 14. Philip says this, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. In other words, hey, Jesus, show us what the Father is like. Reveal the nature of the Father to us. Show us how he thinks and what he feels and how he acts and what he's like. And Jesus, if you will show us this, we will never ask for anything again. Parents, you ever have your children say, if you would just give me this, we'll never ask for anything again. Remember that? How long has that lasted? A couple days, right? Until the next big thing comes out. And so here they're coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, if, if you show us this, we'll never ask for anything Again, and Jesus gives a reply. Maybe Philip never had a clear picture of what God was like. It's interesting, uh, Philip being Jewish, that, that uh, um, historians and scholars would tell us that through the wealth of Jewish literature that we have, that often God is seen as a father of a nation, but he's not referred to as a father of an individual. Even in the Old Testament, if you look at this idea of God the Father, it was God as the Father of Israel, but not God the Father of me. The only exception is in, with King David. Everyone else saw God as, as, as this, of, uh, the nation, but not of a father, a personal dad, if you will, to me. And maybe this is how Philip grew up, that he knew God as a, as a God, as a father of a nation, but... but but Jesus, you seem to have a different relationship with the Father. And if you could show him to me, man, I'd really like to see what he looks like. Or maybe Philip related to God the Father in the same way he related to his earthly father. For whatever reason, he makes this unprecedented request to Jesus. Show us the Father, and here's how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, Philip, how can you ask me that? I just didn't come to give you a better life or to give you a few tips on how to live a better life. I didn't come that your personal satisfaction score in life would be elevated. I didn't come to just help you in your morality and in your, in your living. I came that I might reveal what the Father is like. Meaning, when you see me, Philip, you have seen the Father. When, when you see my compassion for the sick, you see the Father's compassion. 
When you see my mercy, you have seen the Father's mercy. When you see me reaching out to the outcasts and the marginalized and the forgotten, Philip, that is the Father reaching out. That is what the Father is like. Philip, when you see me stepping in to forgive the prostitute, that is the heart of the Father to forgive. When you see me grieved, you see the grieving heart of a father. When you see me flip over money tables, you see the heart of a father that is frustrated when those that, with those who would try to keep the children of God from worshiping God. He says, Philip, you've missed something extremely important. When you see me, you have seen the Father. This week, read through one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you see Jesus, you're seeing the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says this, He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Meaning the Son perfectly mirrors God. There is nothing true about the Son that is not true about the Father. Colossians 1.15, Paul put it this way, He is the image of the invisible God. There's a story of a man who was asked what is his deepest need He'd been coming to church for some time after uh, years of being away. And uh, I was asked, what is your deepest need? And he responded, I need a new God. See, I've been coming to church now for a while. And, I've, and I've, I've heard the pastor say about God is loving and God is kind and God is for us. And God wants to walk with us and be near to us. And, and, and I, I've read it. I've read it in, in the scripture. But in my mind, I see God as someone who is against me, someone who is angry, someone who is looking to do harm to me. I relate to God as my earthly father waiting for him to be upset in some form or fashion with, uh, with my life. He said, And I've started to realize that my problem is my perception, my view of God as Father is warped, and I need a new God. And perhaps today, some of us need a new God, a new vision, a new uh, focus of what God the Father is really like. We see throughout Scripture that our God is generous, and He does abundantly more than we could ask or think. Ephesians 3.20 talks about that passage. We'll put that passage up. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. In the Jewish culture at the time of Passover, there's a popular Hebrew song. Sung during the Passover Seder that's called Dayenu. Uh, Dayenu simply means it would have been enough or it would have been sufficient. It's over a thousand years old and it consists of 15 stanzas uh, referencing the historical uh, context of the plight of the Israelite people. And it takes them from slavery in Egypt leading into freedom. And they sing songs about what God has done in their midst. And after each stanza, the chorus is sung signifying that if this was the only thing that God had done for us, it would have been enough. That if God did nothing else, they would say, Dayenu. It has been sufficient. God has shown himself as being generous. Let me read you some of the stanzas. It would say that if God had only brought us out of Egypt and had not carried us out of judgment, uh, or had not carried out judgment against them, they would say, Dayenu, it would have been enough, but God did more. If he had not given us their wealth and had not split, uh, or if he had given us their wealth and had not split the sea for us, Dayenu, it would have been enough. If he had split the sea for us and had not taken us through on dry land, Dayenu, it would have been amazing. He would have been generous. It would have been enough. If he had taken us through the sea on dry land and had not drowned our oppressors in it, Dayenu, it would have been enough. 
If he had drowned our oppressors in it and had not supplied our needs in the desert for 40 years, Dayenu, he would have met all of our expectations and then some. If he had supplied our needs in the desert for 40 years and had not fed us with manna, Dayenu, they would say, it would have been sufficient. God would have been enough. If he had fed us manna and had not given us the Shabbat, a day of rest, Dayenu, it would have been enough. Now let me ask as we're looking through the generosity of God. Can you look at Jesus? Can you look at God the Father and in your life can you say, Dayenu? That if God never has done another thing for me, I can say that he has been sufficient. He has been enough. Look at it through this lens. When we come to Jesus to receive forgiveness of sin, full forgiveness, free forgiveness, total forgiveness, if God had only given us forgiveness in Christ, we would say, Dayenu. It's been enough. God has been more than generous, but God did more. For the Father reconciled us to himself. He not only wiped the slate clean, not only offered us forgiveness of sin, but he reconciled us to himself and now says that you are my friends. The Father, think of that, calls you a friend. And if the Father would have stopped there just by calling us friends, we would say, Dayenu, it has been enough. But he says now, you are more than a friend. The Father adopts us into his family and actually calls you his son and his daughter. And if the Father would have only called us his son and his daughter, if he did nothing else, we would say, Dayenu, it has been enough. You have been generous. But then he gives us access to his throne. And he says, you can come to me with your request and you can find mercy in my presence. And if God had only given us access to his throne, we would say, Dayenu, it has been more than enough. You have more than sufficed. You have been more than sufficient. But he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, his comforter, and and he empowers us. And if if he had only given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, we would say, Dayenu, but he gives us a foretaste of what the kingdom to come is to look like. And if he would only give us the foretaste of the kingdom, we would say, Dayenu, it's been enough. But he says, there's a future kingdom that is coming that I'm promising to you that you will receive rewards and promises that one day we will stand before him face to face. And if we only had that opportunity for just a moment, we would say, Dayenu, it has been more than enough. But he says you will experience that every day for the rest of eternity. Can you look at your own life as the Father has responded to you? And can you say, Dayenu, if you've never do, if you never do another thing for me in this life, you have been sufficient and have done far more than I could have asked. You see, when we look at uh, Ephesians 3.20, go back to that verse, will you? Go back to the, the slide before that, please. When you think of Ephesians 3.20, now him is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Here, here's how we interpret that, that verse. Well, my car has 150,000 miles on it. And my roof leaks. And so this idea of God doing more than I could ask or think, I just don't see it. Listen, stop interpreting a passage like this through the lens of how many presents are under your tree. Because those are trinkets to God. He says, look, that is not what we're talking about. That, that beyond all that you could ask or think, I have taken you from being an orphan, disconnected, and called you a child. And if I never do anything else, can you say it has been enough? Can you see the generosity of God 
that he has towards his children, doing abundantly more than what we ask. And then we also see uh, the father who is compassionate and slow to anger. Love Psalm 145.8. Let me have the band come up. It says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, that he is slow to anger and rich in love. Can I speak over your soul today that your father is slow to anger towards you and he is rich in love towards you. It reminds me of John 8 when the prostitute was caught or when the woman was caught in the act of adultery. Not committed adultery, but caught in the act. And they throw her before Jesus and they say, Jesus, our law says that she should be stoned and put to death. What do you say? And Jesus gives the famous response that let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now remember, Jesus says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he goes on to say this. This is what the Father's like. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Meaning your accusers. Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Jesus said, If you've seen how I've responded to the worst of sinners, you've seen how the Father responds to you. There is something within us that longs for a father. And I believe that God has revealed himself to us to fill that role because regardless of how good of a father experience you've had on earth or how poor, God says nothing can ultimately fill that longing within you as I can as your creator father, as your spiritual father. And this is the advent of Christmas. A son was given to us to be a father figure to us and to reveal the father to us. Psalm, or John 14, 8, Jesus says, I will never leave you as orphans. Now think about that. I will never leave you as orphans. And for some of us, the best thing that you can hear today is that you have a father God who says, I will never desert you. I will never walk away. I will never uh, 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 walk out. I will never leave you. And I want that to settle upon you. That is our everlasting Father who seeks to be what no one else can be in our lives.